It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Man, I'm so, I'm so hyped right now. Anything's possible. Oh, my mama. Oh, my mama made it, man. Anything's yeah. possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Locked On Celtics podcast with the Rain and Jays. Today, it's me, your boy, Jay King from MassLive.com. I'm going to be bringing to you a little different type of podcast. Obviously, we normally break down Celtics games, Celtics practices, Celtics news, Celtics trade rumors, everything Celtics. Today, I have my one of my really close friends, Michael Nye, just wrote one of my favorite books ever. So he gave me an advanced copy. No big deal. I'm kind of a big shot. No big deal. And he, he let me let me read it. It's just one of the most fascinating books. So I, I picked his brain about writing a book. He's a huge Celtics fan. Uh, so we talked about the the Pierce and Antoine Walker years. We talked about how he became a fan. Talked about a lot of basketball, a lot of nerdy book stuff. So it's definitely a little different than most of our normal podcasts. But I had a really good time with it, just chatting with him, picking his brain, learning how he wrote this book, All the Castles Burned, which really is a fantastic book, which talks a lot about basketball, about the bonds between friendships, about growing up, and really, really just just an amazing book. So I, I was proud to have him on the podcast. It was fun to chat with him. And without further ado, I'll get to that interview right now. All right, so we're here with Michael Nye, one of my close friends, a, a first-time novelist. He just just released a, an awesome, awesome book called All the Castles Burned, and it is about two kids who play basketball. It's their friendship. It's kind of like the haunting tales of, of their family life. It is really one of the best books I've ever read, All the Castles Burned. Michael Nye. Michael, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Delighted to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me on, Jay. Yeah, so I, I guess we'll start with your book. So I don't know how much you want to to spoil, to to bring up, but I, I guess, first of all, let, let, do you want to give a quick overview of your book first, kind of what's it, what it's about and and what the people can look forward to when they go buy All the Castles Burned? which they should do immediately on Amazon.com? So All the Castles Burned is, as you said, my debut novel. Um, It's the story of Owen Webb. He's the son of working class parents. And the book is set back in 1994. Um, So he receives a scholarship to go to this really prestigious day school. And while there, he 
starts a friendship with this guy named Carson Bly. He's an upperclassman. He's from a, a wealthier family. Um, and their friendship is really deepened through this love of basketball. Um, the very first chapter opens up with them getting up some shots, getting to know each other a little bit. Um, and Owen develops this obsession with not only playing ball, but with impressing Carson, with growing closer to him as, as friends. Uh, at the same time, Owen's family life is falling apart. His parents, their marriage is beginning to show strains. Uh, it continues to get worse as the book progresses. And that that breakdown of the family between those two boys, which sounds like it's you know some kind of right-wing propaganda, but it's really not. Uh, the, <laughs> the breakdown of the family uh, pushes Owen and Carson together, um, makes them closer. And Carson, who's kind of a... Uh, mysterious and uh, angry young man begins to manipulate that friendship, which starts taking um, some really dark turns as they get to know each other better as their season progresses and as Owen's family life falls apart. How many times have you given that that overview? Because that, that sounded well scripted, man. That was that was impressive. I've done it a couple of times. So uh, <laughs> the, the book came out uh, on February 13th. Uh, I've done two public readings. I've done... A half dozen interviews, uh, some over Skype like this, some on the phone, uh, some in person. And yeah, I, I've, I've gotten down the first, okay, what happens in the first 50 pages of this book uh, to make sure that people are enticed. And I don't try to balance not giving too much away, but also being like, oh, I would read that. You know, you want to want to make sure that the people get a little bit of both. Yep. And so because I have read the book and I'm not the author of the book, I can vouch for it. Like, just an amazing book. The the way you describe everything is, is just. I I feel like the little details of it are amazing. I think the the way you describe, especially the basketball scenes, like it just it just took me back. The the first scene really is they meet in the the prep school, and they're sitting there, and one of them's playing hoop. The other one is kind of giving them crap about playing hoop. And just the way you describe the basketball scene, like I, I went to prep school for a year and I was like, this is exactly what happened when I was in prep school. So my, my question for you, Michael, is how, how much of, of that did you live and how much of, of your own life did you kind of like spill over into this book and how much of it is just, just fantasy? The answer I've been going with is 25% real and 75% fiction. Um, I, too, went to a private school for a couple of years. And the, the gym in Chapter 1 is a gym that, that really existed uh, at the Seven Hill School, which is in Cincinnati. It existed at and Loomis Chafee, which is where I went for one year. They're like, same I, exact gym. I swear yeah, to God. I think everybody that has gone to a Catholic school or a private school knows that that shitty gym that for some reason hasn't been knocked down, that is always drafting cold. And you can always get in there and get a couple of shots up or get get a couple of games in, you know, where the sidelines and baseline are right up against the wall. So if you you go for a layup and you get bumped at all, you're going to go face first into a wall. Um, the, the, the lighting that's no good, um, the draftiness from whatever fans are circulating uh, yep. yeah, in, the, in, the, in the summer, that's the gym that that's always like super, super hot. You get a sweat in as soon as you walk in there, there's definitely no AC. 
Yeah, and your palms are constantly, the ball just slides right off. No <laughs> amount of wristbands, no no Christian Leitner look is going to help you out with that. <laughs> and so with this opening chapter, you know, I wanted to get a sense of uh, their athleticism, kind of the way that they look. Um, it's a real challenge. And, you know, as a sports writer, uh, a lot of times when you're writing writing about the game, you're just, you're conveying the information, you know, who won, who went on a, a run, but because you're under such a tight deadline, you don't really have the opportunity to describe the action, to slow it down. And despite this book being about Owen and Carson meeting, becoming friends through basketball, it's not a, I wouldn't call it exactly a sports novel where, you know, winning the big game or losing the big game, but learning an important life lesson at the end. Like, that's not what this book is. And so the basketball scenes in this book, I wanted to somehow be different, you know, getting a sense of what it's like to see somebody shoot a free throw, the mechanics of it, uh, the nervousness, um, having an exciting play be a defensive stop rather than, you know, the game winning shot. Um, and so I, I thought a lot about those, those scenes in the book and, and how I could describe something that I hadn't read in the pages of a sports illustrator on SB Nation or in Sporting News. I wanted that to be something vivid and unusual for a reader so that when they're reading those basketball scenes, they can follow them and get the sense that they're discovering something they haven't seen written before. Yeah. And the, the, the author that it kind of reminded me of was Pat Conroy. And Pat Conroy is literally my my very favorite author ever my my parents have a dog named conroy because oh, no kidding. the king the king family loves pat conroy so much but he, he just describes basketball differently like like he, he looks at the same stuff we do i guess it's just because he's a better writer and he d- describes things more more detailed or he looks at different details i guess than than other people do and i, I would say that's kind of what you did with this like you talk about the the way the the ball ripples and it's just like like the way you describe the basketball the the amount of depth you put into those scenes was just cool to me because I I like I go into the gym and I hear the balls bouncing and that's one of my favorite things is like the the way basketball has has kind of forged me to look at things differently so I I'll say like my favorite thing in the world when I was a player <laughs> was actually the moment the national anthem was being played like as weird as it seems the national anthem is what i miss most in my about playing because during the national anthem like you were so amped you were so ready for the game and everything seemed possible right like like i I would i would sit there and i would picture myself like pumping in 10 three-pointers and being a hero and i I would never (laughs) listen to the actual national anthem but i'd be like swaying back and forth like so so amped up and but for whatever reason like like the the game that that the game always whenever i hear a national anthem it doesn't matter whether i'm at something else i always feel that way and and your scenes the way you describe them actually took me back to when i was in prep school and i would literally i would go to that that danky gym and i would spend all my study blocks in the danky gym and that year like I was always a shooter. My one year of prep school, I just sucked. And so, so <laughs> as a shooter, I, I was, I was great at everything else. I became a point guard. I averaged almost 10 assists a game. Like I, I transformed my ways, my game in weird ways that year, but just shooting wise sucked. So your, your book took me back to my shittiest shooting year. 
and my struggle is trying to refine my jump shot in the dark, danky gym. So I appreciate you reminding me of the time when I just could not fucking shoot. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, what I remember about but, back in the 90s when, when we were like opening up with the games is that we could give the um, – the guy who who ran the PA system, we could give him a cassette tape and he would play that for warmups. And you always had to make sure that you got like the edited version of a song so that there were no curse words in it. Or you'd get somebody to kind of like start like the first 45 seconds of a song. And then before it got bad, like it kind of bled into the next <laughs> one. So the mixtape for us were really huge for warmups. So, you know, because then when we did national anthems, it was, again, just another tape that was playing. and It sounded really, really bad. And then the other thing, of course, is always just trying to catch people's eyes in the stands, like whatever girl you got a crush on oh, yeah. or your parents or your friend, like always just, just trying to see if they're looking right at you. And then once you make eye contact, try to be cool and act like you're not looking for them, which, you know, just stuff you do when you're a teenager, you know? Absolutely. And like layup lines, you got to look, got to look cool. That was like when the coolness could really come out, you know, like, like you, you could really show your swag with like just not giving a damn during warm up lines, just just acting like you've you've done all this cool crap before when really you're just like this pimply fifteen year old who's <laughs> just hoping not to brick every shot and turn the ball over all the time once you get in the game. But you gotta look cool. <laughs> but gotta, gotta so, look good, absolutely. That that's really the key. Even if you're in like varsity's like old uniforms that got handed down to the J V squad, you gotta look as good as you possibly can. What, so what was your writing process like? going back to those scenes like like did you did you go out and shoot around and 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 think about it like write notes down when you shot around what was the actual writing process of those scenes because you got in so much so much detail about them that it, it felt like you had just finished shooting around when you wrote those scenes yeah not so much I'm still a pretty active, until recently, pretty active pickup basketball player. You know, I play three or four times a week. So I, I think about the game fairly frequently. When, when thinking about writing the scenes in this book, from the, the first draft, I kind of knew what direction that storyline was going, which um, the the boys end up getting in, in a pretty serious brawl in their, in their second season that gets uh, one of them suspended off the team and has even more serious consequences for the other. And so I always knew I was leading up to that moment and thinking about trying to structure a novel and, and planning out those scenes, you know, that that needs to be the apex, right? Like that's the big moment. So I wanted to show the way that Owen and Carson learn to be good teammates, how they work together on the court, getting their Jordan and Pippen on and having a sense of rhythm and flow to their game. And so thinking about how I wanted that to come out, again, not, you know, going to state or, or winning the league, but showing scenes that will indicate how their friendship is going. The, the basketball is really an aid to the, the friendship. That's the story that I'm trying to tell. So they have to notice things about each other's game that other people wouldn't notice. Um, and the thing with basketball, it's such a fluid game. There's not a lot of time for pauses. You know, you, you're, you're shooting free throws, you're kind of off looking the stands, you know, timeouts, so, you know, side out of bounds, those things. But for game action, Things are happening all the time, and that's really a disadvantage as a writer. It's more exciting to play or at least watch it on TV than it is to read about it on the page. So I was always looking for moments in the game where you could look at those guys a little bit differently. Think about Owen in a different perspective than you would see if you were watching on television. I mean, that's the great advantage of being a writer. You can get inside someone's head 
Well, if you're watching it on a screen, you have no idea really what somebody's thinking. I mean, maybe the the worst question that reporters will ask a, an athlete after a great play, like, what were you thinking? Anybody that's ever played the game it knows you're not thinking at all. You're just playing the game, uh, which is why athletes always have really boring answers to that question. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure those scenes um, gave the reader an opportunity to get inside Owen's head, see everything the way he was experiencing it, and then hopefully feeling the same way he was about it afterwards. Yeah, th- that to me was was one of the coolest parts of your book. Uh, it was just the like literally you you put it in ways that I've always felt but I've never like seen written the just the way you describe the basketball scenes it, it I it just took me back like I said to that shitty shitty year <laughs> of shooting but I just trying to grapple I was just wrestling with my damn shot um but okay so so that was your writing process for for that particular aspect of it how did you get the idea for this particular novel? Uh, like, how, how long did it take you to come up with this idea? I, I'm always interested, and maybe it's just the writing nerd in me, but, like, how, how does the vision come? Do you, do you think of the whole idea at once? Are there different parts of it? Like, did you, did you set off thinking, like, okay, I'm going to write a, a novel about these two, two young friends, and then you decided, like, you brainstormed the rest of it? Or did it come to you, like, okay, there's going to be this, this this piece of drama the the fight that you talked about and i'm gonna weave you know these two friends into it. how did how did it first start as an idea in your mind and then how did you kind of add the other layers to it yeah that's such a tough question i guess the the first thing that was coming to me when when thinking about this book is that i wanted to write about male friendship um when when we're teenagers when we're boys we get to know each other not through talking, but through something else, whether it's sports, the theater, band, um, is activities where you're doing something, where there's action going on so that you don't actually have to talk about what you're thinking or feeling. Um, and what I wanted to explore in this book was why do some friendships sustain? What kind of strength can they give us? What kind of damage can they do? Um, and I just naturally felt that that basketball would be an entry into that for these two particular boys, um, where anger is such a, a strong emotion running through the book. And I think it would be normal to have any kind of uh, anger and energy in a, in a teenage boy coming out through sports. So it, it's funny you ask about when this book started, because I've always been telling people about four years ago. Um, and the reason for that is because I had a short story collection called Strategies Against Extinction that came out in 2012, and I was working on a different novel back then, which ultimately I found an agent for, but we were never never able to sell it. So I kind of assumed that my writing process was linear, you know, work on one book, work on the next one, work on the next one, work on the next one. But I looked it up the other day, and, you know, thankfully with laptops, we save everything. We've got all our files. So I looked up the very first chapter that I wrote for this book. And I, I initially wrote it in 2010. So that would have been before the story collection came out while I was working on a completely different book. I must have just jotted down some ideas or however many paragraphs. Um, and then the, the file, like I, I stopped working on chapter one. I save all my old drafts sometime in 2011. So I abandoned this uh, this very first chapter, this very first draft of this chapter, you know, probably to work on a different book. 
or work on a different story. Who knows? So it's been gestating for seven years. Um, and then the process of getting and working on it, um, I know was it was started when I was living in living in D.C. So, um, so yeah, probably about four years to get it done. But it's been in the back of my mind for a very long time. Yeah, that that that's cool that you've kind of just stewed on it, and it's cool that you even forgot when you first started. Like, that's weird, right? Yeah, it, it's kind of weird, but it also makes sense because there are so many things going on. And you're you're a man. You've, you've got jobs. You so ex- explain to the people how how you actually wrote the story because I, I know like you wake up super early. Um, but explain to them kind of how how you actually wrote like you, the sit down and write the process because I I think that's kind of neat to to kind of learn how a book like this comes together and that you're doing all these other things but you're you're waking up every morning. Yeah. So I'm an early morning person by training. I would not say that I'm naturally a person that gets up early in the morning, but I've always found that whatever is the most important thing, I have to do it in the morning. You know, at the end of the day, like seven o'clock, I'm, I'm not interested in doing anything but watching TV. So I started setting my alarm earlier and earlier back in, I think, 2009 um, to for my alarm to go off at 530 in the morning and get up and start writing. And so back then I was living in Columbia, Missouri, which is a college towns where the University of Missouri is. It's about 100 miles west of St. Louis. And I would get up and went to a coffee shop called Lakota that opened at 6 a.m. every morning. And they had these big tables, like wide enough where you could kind of spread yourself out a little bit. And I'd always sit in the back and I would write there on my laptop or, if, you know, I had printed pages. I would edit the margins. I, I like to edit. I like to rewrite on paper rather than on a laptop um, and would work on the on the book or whatever else I was writing um, until I had to go to work, uh, which has always been 9 a.m. And then do more work on my my stuff Saturday and Sunday mornings, you know, uh, with as much free time as I could possibly get. Um, and I continued that practice. I, I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2015. Um, I used to have a house in Columbia, so I had room to write in my house, even though I always liked to go to cafes. There was no room for a desk in my D.C. apartment, so I had to find a place to go write. Um, so I tried writing at the McDonald's across the street, um, uh, Panera Bread, uh, McDonald's uh, is a terrible place to write, by the way. It really is. Like <laughs> the idea. So I was thinking because it was right across the street from my apartment. And it was open 24 hours, which means the coffee's like a dollar and five cents, right? Like good deal, cheap coffee, plenty of tables. It just, you know, McDonald's always smell like McDonald's. Like you can't get away from that. Yep. And being open 24 hours, you got some interesting people that show up there. Like it just never felt super yep. comfortable as a place to work. The place the, I liked working the, in D.C. was um, actually the coffee shop and the grocery store. Like nobody ever hangs out in the coffee shop at a grocery store, which is why it's a great place to write. Nobody bothers you there. So I would usually write in the grocery store on the weekends. And now um, my wife and I have just moved to Columbus, Ohio in September. And I have this room in my house that's um, a little bit bigger than a walk-in closet. And this is where I do my writing now. I get, I still get up early, get up at 530. Um, I write by hand. Um, so work by hand. New- yeah, I've just started to trying that the last year. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's well, it helps. It helps. Like it's a different thought process when you're putting 
pen to paper as opposed to typing. And it's really easy to get distracted, right? Like to check your Twitter feed and find out what's going on in the world. And next thing you know, you've lost 30 minutes. But if, if all you have in front of you is a legal pad and a pen, you can, you can sit there and like zone out and you still got a ton of time to work because you're not distracting yourself with the internet. I mean, are you writing with like quill and ink? (laughs) (laughs) I was until I died of dysentery. at the age of 30. No, it, it really does help. A, a writer friend suggested that I try that. So in the morning, yeah, on weekdays, I write by hand and then I type it up Saturday morning to kind of like jumpstart my Saturday morning writing when I've got, you know, a, a couple of hours as opposed to just like two or three on a weekday. Uh, it, it's been a big help. It's, a, it's just a very different process. And it's not as slow as you might think, because a lot of novel writing on a laptop is just staring off into space, waiting for something to come to you or like to get the right word down. Um, So I've actually found it doesn't slow me down all that much. NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're up to date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan, rejecting the screen, the Locked On NBA podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet wherever you get your podcasts. That's that's impressive. So why I brought up that McDonald's is a bad place to 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 work is one year, this was probably like six years ago, I was okay. I was working at SB Nation at the time and I was living with my parents in Western Massachusetts and there was a huge snowstorm and it was a snowstorm in like October. So the the trees still had all the leaves on them. Mm-hmm. And when, when there was all the snow, instead of, you know, just coming through the, the leafless trees, it felled all the trees with leaves on. Like trees were just toppling over left and right and taking out power lines everywhere. So we lost we lost power for like two weeks in Western Mass. And the only place that had power and freaking Wi-Fi was McDonald's. So I was spending like eight hours a day at McDonald's writing and working and using their wi-fi and i smelled like french fries for like like three months man it was it was miserable but it was <laughs> the only place that had power and the only place that had wi-fi and the only place that was reliable so i appreciate them for helping me keep my job at sb nation but it, it was a miserable few weeks all right 
<laughs> we're probably getting a little a little writer geek type. It's, that's okay. It's what the people want. Yeah, every everyone wants writer geek talk. Um, but who who are the the authors that you read a lot and kind of try to take from their work? Who are the guys you look up to the most? Always going to be Fitzgerald. Okay. Um, when I was first in college, I mean, that to me was the guy that could could write beautiful sentences, like that could create images that stick in your head, that had that rhythm and syntax that I really admired that I'm always trying to emulate. Um, my biggest worry as a writer is not telling a story or believable characters, but that I can't write a good sentence. That has always been my fear. And so Fitzgerald has been kind of a amused to me. Um, Richard Rousseau, whose, whose novels are just, they're page turners. Like you get to the end of a chapter, you're like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm done. I got to quit reading. And you always flip to the next page because he's just terrific at telling great stories that you just can't put down. Uh, Zadie Smith. Um, I love all of her novels. I think I probably read White Teeth 12 times. Um, she's funny and smart. She's got that great narrative voice and the, the characters are so rich. Um, and I'll leave it there. Otherwise I could go on for a long time. There's a, there's a lot of writers that I, I deeply admire, but I'd say those three are the ones that lead to the front of my mind. Do you read now? And it's kind of like you're, you're studying instead of reading because I, I, I feel like I've started to do that or I started to do that a long time ago, I guess, where everything I, I read, I used to just read for enjoyment and now I read and I'm like breaking down how people are doing things and why they're doing it and studying it and kind of in some ways overreacting to it. Like I, I wish that I still just read for enjoyment and could just sit down and, and with a book and kind of just let it speak to me. But now I, I just I find myself kind of kind of looking at, at it in a totally different way than I used to since I started writing. Yeah, see, I actually think that enriches the reading experience. I think it's even better when you see what somebody's doing. You can appreciate the way that they're making a book work or they're making a character work. Um, I like being conscious of that. You know, there are books that I read where you don't have to do that. Like if you pick up a Lee Child novel, like you don't have to think, right? Like Jack Reacher is going to beat everybody up. It's fine. Um, <laughs> all the all the women look exactly the same. Like. In a Tom Clancy novel, you get these loving descriptions of rifles and submarines and all that other shit. Um, you don't have to think when you're reading those. But when I'm reading books by contemporaries who I admire, um, or novels that I think are really engaging and memorable, um, I like being conscious of that. And if they're, if the book's really great, if the writer's really amazing, I stop thinking altogether and I'm just reading. And when I'm done reading the book, I, I think, oh, I need to go back and reread that. I gotta, I gotta figure out how she did that, like what he did to tell that story. Um, I think that's a good thing to have. I think that's a quality that, um, just makes you not just a better writer, but a better reader as well. Uh, I'm on board. I'm just becoming a better reader all the time. Now that, that's, that's how I'll sell it to myself. Um, <laughs> you're also a huge basketball fan, huge Celtics fan. You have a, you have a kind of unique becoming a Celtics fan, story I'll, I'll i'll let you tell the people how you became a celtics fan because i think it's pretty interesting yeah and this is I, it's important to know exactly how old i am so i am 39 years old and the reason that's important is because as a child of the 90s 
Um, I got my NBA basketball through TNT and TBS back when TBS showed the Hawks. So I lived in Cincinnati, which is a great college basketball town, Xavier, UC. This was back in the Patino UK days. But we we hate Cleveland in Cincinnati. Um, no love for the Cavaliers and, and Mark Price and Larry Nance and all that. And then the other person that was close, of course, was the Indiana Pacers and Reggie Miller, who's one of my least favorite people ever. So when I graduated from from college, I left Ohio State in 2000. I moved to Boston. And the only way I got to watch NBA basketball, you know, pre-league pass was whatever the you know national game was, whatever was on NBC, um, TNT. This is before ESPN bought up all the games. So I moved out to Boston. It was 2000, 2001. And it was my first job out of college you don't make a lot of money at your first job uh, i didn't know a ton of people and i had the chance to sit at home and watch celtics games because me and my housemates had cable i didn't have money to go out i love basketball and so i fell in love watching the celtics with those young pierce and walker teams um seeing paul and and tuan just jack up threes you know they were always okay right you know 45 47 wins they were they were in that range I got I got to experience Tommy and I, talk about a, the greatest Homer commentator ever, and listening to him talk in his thick Boston accent and you know watching the Celtics three or four nights every single week, um, just first time I was ever in a town where we had an NBA team, and getting to watch them constantly see how their season was going uh, was something I, I didn't get the chance to experience when I was growing up. And then once I left Boston, I, I went to graduate school out in Missouri, league pass blew up, and then I could just watch all the Celtics games all the time. Um, and I've been following them closely ever since. So even now here in Ohio, uh, you know, I get in arguments with my you know Lyft driver because they're like, oh, you know, Cavs this, Cavs that. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're, you got the wrong passenger for this conversation, pal. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, um, I've gotten in some arguments about that IT Irving trade. Um, obviously we're pretty happy with how that turned out for us, but yeah, I, I've been a hardcore Celtics fan for 17 years now and it's still going strong and it's not going to change. So you got there kind of at a, at a decent time, I guess you missed all the, the really bad years. Like, yeah, the Dino Raja years. Yeah. I missed that. The Dino Raja, the Marty Conlon, the Brett <sighs> Zabo, the, the Rick Pitino years, those were those were some down, down years. Those were ugly. But I also did not experience the 80s either, right? So I didn't experience Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Dennis Johnson. Like I that is all the history that, you know, is before my time as a fan. Yeah. I, I, see, I I I came into Celtics fandom and I, I was a huge Celtics fan growing up. I now I I try to be as unbiased as possible. Um, but I, I came in when they were just, I, I mean, I got, got the very tail end of the bird years, I guess. Uh, m- one of my first memories is literally like shaking while my parents took me to the, the old Boston garden and it was probably during Larry Bird's final year and mm. I was just shaking. I, I shook the whole night. My whole body would not stop shaking. I was just so damn excited to be in the same building as Larry freaking Bird. It was just just too much for me at the time. I was probably like five years old. Um, but I, I, And then the years when I was really becoming a, a formative basketball fan, it was there were some crap, crap years. And then that, that Pierce-Antoine team 
was was just fun enough to just to kind fun of enough. pull that's, you that's in. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, just fun enough. Yeah, yeah, like like I used to I used to do the Walker Wiggle when I was in who did it like fourth oh, grade. God, I would fun, I would hit a big shot and like pull out the Walker Wiggle, and my coach was probably like this fucking idiot. Like what, <laughs> what is this little <laughs> asshole doing? <laughs> and then then we had uh, Eric Williams was my guy back then. I don't know if he was your guy. Yeah, I remember Eric. Why? Why him? That's an interesting choice. I don't. I don't know. There was something. He he wasn't that talented. He was just kind of a a rugged dude. Just just kind of played ball. He was a role role player, but he knew he was a role player. I, I was I was always I think a fan of. I, actually, I, I guess my fandom kind of goes in different ways because I, I should have hated Antoine Walker. I should have. The, everything about Antoine Walker should have bugged me. Like. The fact that he got fatter and fatter, and the, <laughs> the fact that he, he didn't <laughs> didn't really seem to care about basketball too much, and the fact that he was like hey, that guy was ridiculously talented. Like he was six eight, he inside was. outside yeah. skills, like great great passer. When he if he had wanted to stay in shape, that guy could have been unbelievable. So he sh- he shouldn't have been one of my favorite players, but he was. He just he just had there was something about him that I just I just loved. I, I guess I was I think I was just young enough or not quite old enough to hate Antoine Walker. So I just kind of appreciated his, his shimmy and the Walker wiggle for what it was and, and just kind of, kind of let it be. I, I wasn't at a stage where I was into like the advanced stats yet. <laughs> he probably would have bugged me if, if I knew exactly how harmful all of his shots were. Um, but instead, instead I kind of liked Antoine. He was my guy. Yeah. My, my guy as a kid was Tim Hardaway. And, um, I don't know what the advanced numbers are on him, but he was just fearless. And I remember it was after he'd blown at his knee and, uh, the Warriors were up in, uh, Denver and they ran their set and kicked out to Hardaway and he's got an open three and he airballs it. And the Nuggets fans that give him a hard time, they're, they're laughing, they're putting an airball, all that other stuff. <laughs> Nuggets come down, turn the ball over. Warriors are on a fast break kick the ball to, to Hardaway. He's coming up the sideline and it's a three on two. And it's the exact same spot that he had just missed that three pointer where he just airballed it. He pulls up on the break and just launches and drains it. Nuggets come back again, get up a shot. They miss, kick the ball out to Hardaway. He's coming up the sideline. He pulls up four feet behind the line this time, launches it, drains it. That's my guy. Just like absolutely fearless um everything about him and he had that knuckleball shot which is kind of what i had as well because i weighed like a buck 10 in high school and i couldn't get the ball up so also having that that flat shot was something i always loved about him as well and so uh even you know i followed him when he was with the heat and i I was loved him when he was like you know his knee was bone on bone he couldn't play anymore uh that was always my guy and then with you know with the celtics now i mean not as popular, but even with the championship teams, I was a Rondo guy. I love Rondo. I know he can't shoot. I don't care. Everything else that he can do, it at least was. He's on what his ninth team now or whatever it is now. Yep. Uh, when he was a young buck and he was you know, doing those fake wraparound passes and his his defense, I just I love that guy. Rondo was my guy. Uh, Rondo is is one of the weirdest cases I feel like as a Celtics player from a fan perspective. Like I feel like Rondo at the beginning of his career, everyone just loved Rondo because like his second year, right? He was started for a team that had three Hall of Famers, and 
nobody expected him to do anything. And he just, he was a gamer. He was tough as hell. Like just loved to, to compete. And he was, he was mean and angry and, and he was perfectly KG. Like everything about the Rondo experience, like he just had that edge to him that Boston kind of loves. And then later in his career, like he just stopped giving a damn. I think his knee never really got right when he was in Boston and people just soured on him. And I, I get why people soured on him, but I also think oh, for sure. those first few years of the Rondo experience were incredible. And when, when he would get to the playoffs and just spin ridiculous triple doubles or like when he would be on national TV and just go wild, he, he was he was so fun to watch. And he did, did all of it with, without any semblance of a jump shot. This is kind of a weird thought, but since you, you're such a huge Eric Williams fan, <laughs> have you ever asked a role player how hard it is to be a role player? You know, if you think about that, like, we talk about NBA players and we say, oh, that guy sucks. He's no good. You know, all, all that that good stuff. But if you really think about it, to, to be in the NBA, you are one of the best basketball players on the planet. And to, to get drafted, to make a team, you're really, really good. And so a role player was the best guy on his eighth grade team, best guy on his high school team, best guy on his college team. And he gets he finally gets to the NBA and he's just a rotation guy. Like, have you ever asked someone like, mentally how you prepare to do that every day because i would think that'd be kind of soul crushing to get that close to the top and then find out you're you're just a 10 minute a game guy well it, it i i have never asked somebody specifically it's kind of a, i guess it's kind of a tough thing to ask, i don't think it? yeah but i i feel like there are two ways people succeed as bench players in the nba one is to be so dumb that you don't realize you're a bench guy right <laughs> like like you you think you're the best player in the world and, Deion Waiters. and I like like Deion Waiters or like like Isaiah Thomas when he was first coming into the league like he was a 60th pick he was behind Jimmer Fredette God knows why oh, and geez. and whoever else in Sacramento but he always thought he was the best player and he always thought he should be the go-to guy right and then there are other guys who succeed because they're self-aware and they realize exactly what they are and that's a guy who's going to just hit threes or just space the court or just come in and switch defensively and get rebounds or whatever the case may be. But it's either the, I feel like it's either the really self-aware guys who are super valuable or the guys just, just have no clue and just have utmost confidence. Like the Lou Williams, like Lou Williams, he he's only gotten to the stage where he is because he's always forever his entire career just thought he was the greatest (laughs) and you couldn't could not tell lou williams he's not the greatest i i believe if if you pulled lou williams in a moment of total honesty he would tell you he's the greatest scorer who ever lived and and some nights he's right because he thinks like that but it's it's it really is kind of that it is a fascinating thing how how different um you have to kind of behave mentally as as a role player versus you know when you when you grow up the whole time your whole life you've been a star that that is kind of a fascinating thing not so fascinating was saturday night's dunk contest and i bring this up because honestly i want to vent and <laughs> i just want to talk about how shitty the dunk contest was and you 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 did not watch it I did not. I've been off the All-Star game for a couple of years. Well, it's, you know, the game itself isn't basketball. Nobody tries. 
Um, you can get all the highlights the next day in 30 seconds. And it, there's so much time between the shots and the dunks and all the preparation. And like, you know, when you get to hour three of listening to the inside the NBA guys yammer on, it's like, you know, I can't do any more of this. So, yeah, I, I've given up on the game a long time ago. Did, did you watch the dunks later on? No, I, I saw. So I, I was at the gym running on the treadmill and I saw Larry Nance like tap the ball to himself and dunk and yeah, he threw it as that was a pretty cool I dunk mean, it, it was fine and <laughs> then i just thought eh, you know that's okay and i haven't seen anything else from it so uh, they were just handing out 50s 50s like it's just the easiest dunks donovan mitchell jumped over like like some five-year-old kids i think it was his little sister i don't know how old she was but she was pretty young and certainly not at all tall and kevin hart and they were all crunched over like right under the basket probably 95 percent of the nba could have dunked over the people that he dunked over and i think he got a 50 for that dunk he got a 50 for throwing he brought in a a, a new hoop and just threw it off the board and kind of did a, a sil- simple windmill off of that it was very easy another i think it was a 48 or 50 it, they were just handing out 50s like candy it sounds so salty <laughs> and it's because i am so salty and who it's are because, these judges? Who's judging the, the it was, dunks? It was like Mark Wahlberg. Uh, who else do oh, they God. have? It was pro- a lot of guys who probably couldn't ever dunk. Although maybe Marky Mark could get up there a little bit. I don't know. They should just have Neek and Jordan be the judges, just right? That's it. Like then, then everybody would get like a thirty-one over and over again. They're just like, nah, yeah, <laughs> you can't. That that's not right, son. I feel like Jordan would be a very harsh dunk. But but what really threw me over the edge in the dunk contest? was when Donovan Mitchell put on Vince Carter's jersey. And and I think part of it is just because I was, what, 13 or probably 13 when Vince Carter had his epic dunk. That was 2000, right? That sounds right. Yeah. yeah, so I was I was probably 13 years old, and it was like right in the height of caring about the dunk contest. Like there are only a few years when you really care about the dunk contest. And one of those years for me was when Vince Carter just put on a, a perfect display. But he put on the Carter jersey and did a he did one of Vince Carter's dunks, but he just did it not nearly as well as Vince Carter did. And it's like Why did he put on the what is <laughs> what tie does Donovan Mitchell have to Vince Carter? I don't I don't get it. Uh, yeah, and if you're gonna do the Vince Carter dunk, you've gotta do it better than him. Like he did well, you, that you, he did that shit eighteen be, years ago. If you're going to be Vince doing a Vince Carter dunk, you need to bring out a seven foot two Frenchman who's a total stiff. <laughs> that would be awesome. And then just throw it down on top of that guy. I would have been. You I would have been all for that. I I think they need to have. They need to bring out defenders to try to block dunks, and okay, then it would be way better. It like, would be way better, but who would enter right? Because that that is, that is an ACL tear or broken back waiting to happen, right? Like if you're trying to, to get up on somebody and they are trying to stop you, oh, I mean, oh my god, that'd be death. I watch. That would be exciting. That would be very cool. But, I mean, that's the thing with the dunk contest. Like great dunks, you know, Baron Davis over Karolinko, uh, Kevin Johnson over Hakeem, Vince Carter over everybody. You've got to dunk on someone. That's what makes it so amazing. If it's just you and the rim, I mean, eh, you know, so-so. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm not an All-Star Weekend guy at all. I just just kind of get a little salty. It, it always throws me off. Every year, I, I tell myself I'm not going to get mad. 
I'm like, the dunk contest is going to suck. The all-star game, there's going to be no defense. Just take it, take it in stride, Jay. And I always, <laughs> I always get way saltier. Than, yeah, this than is I a time feel. when you gotta you gotta go to the movies. Like you gotta catch up on all like the best picture or like go golfing or something like that. You need to find a way to not be around a TV so you don't have to see any of that nonsense. Yeah, but I, instead I get I like almost get excited for it every year. I'm like, ooh, the dunk contest tonight. It's gonna be great. Sick. Can't wait. Yeah. Nope. No, nope. I mean it's a, a week before you get real basketball. I mean, there's nothing for a week, and it's just. There's there's nothing else like the Winter Olympics don't really do it for me. Spring training baseball doesn't really do it for me. There's there's nothing else for a week and it's just uh, it's brutal, just awful. Yeah. So so nobody knows about this. Um, you are the greatest Celtics writer alive. This is not true. Th- this is actually true. You're the you're the best Celtics writer alive, and so I'll, I'll give a little backstory. I think probably some like old school super faithful listeners know about Celtics wire so basically one of our friends created an email chain what eight years ago now seven or eight years ago I think it's about eight years yeah and that's actually how how Michael and I met was through an email chain it sounds like the weirdest story ever so our 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 friend put together a bunch of people with ties to the Celtics whether it was fandom or writing about the Celtics or whatever the case may be and there are six or seven of us and we now call ourselves the Celtics wire so ba- basically every every game Michael writes a uh, a preview of of the game and weaves in a scene from the wire and honestly if, if you published those on some website, I swear to God, you'd be like the most popular Celtics writer a lot by far. Some of those game threads definitely get phoned in. You know, there, there's ones <laughs> that I really get into. And then there's others where it's like, oh, my God, there's a game in 30 minutes. And I was busy with work. and I forgot that the game is starting today. Um, yeah, I've got like a spreadsheet of quotes that I, and I, I'll think about, OK, what season, what scene, you know, what happened between between Stringer and Avon that would best explain Celtics versus Hornets, like trying to find a way into it that way. And, um, you know, I wasn't always described for the thread. Our our friend who must remain mysteriously nameless uh, used to write a lot of those opening threads. Uh, with a lot, a lot of deeper cuts into both the show into the game, um, and that I can't do, you know. So, like, I'm probably like once every five days where I'm really into it. And what I'm trying to do this year is go chronologically through the wire from season one through season five with the game quotes. So once we get back from the break, I'll be starting in on season four, and because I. The subject line when I send it out to everybody always has a quote from The Wire as the subject line. And I've had to hold a couple of good ones back for the playoffs in the hope that the Celtics make a deep run. But that, that's that been kind of fun to do, trying to figure out how to like chronologically tell the story. And then every now and then, like somebody says something great, and I got to look up which Wire figure it was, like – Oh, that was Crutchfield. I forgot it. But, you know, I know who he is, but like, I gotta, I gotta double check, you know, what his name is or something like that. So, um, but yeah, it's just something that we've been doing for so long that yeah, I, I'd like to think like even the short ones are just kind of a little, little nudge, a little reminder, like, okay, it's game time, you know, kind of have a laugh about the show and about the game and, and a way for our friendships to keep going, you know, after all these years where we've all, you know, 
not just move to different cities, but switch jobs. And of course, the team's up and downs, you know, over the, this past decade have been, you know, all the way up at the top and all the way down to the bottom. So, um, yeah, it would be be amazing to see all those threads. Um, I used to write for my old work account. So it, I think like at least the first four seasons I don't even have anymore. I, you know, I use Gmail now. So those are probably archived somewhere because, you know, Google's like saving everything. But uh, yeah, the rest of it, who knows where it is. Yeah, I, I think I, I used to use my CelticsTown.com email. So oh, wow. I, I, I doubt I have access to that, that anymore. I, I might, though. <laughs> I'm not sure. That I, wonder was, what the first, I wonder what the first one was like. I don't really – I don't have any idea. I, I, have, I have no recollection of huh. that whatsoever. But what, So when you write your, your emails about the Celtics game, I'm like – every time I'm like, fucking Michael – I'm like this motherfucker. Like this is my job. This is what I do. And here's this guy with his own job writing novels on his spare in his spare time. And he's a better Celtics writer than I am. So it, it's tough. It's tough. I, I feel like one of these days I should we should publish one of the the Celtics Wire emails. One of your openers. Like like throw out a good one. Show the people what they're missing every day. I don't know. There's some confidentiality issues there. There are know. some confidentiality there's, issues. There's some good stuff. You know, the other thing that this is going to sound really weird. Um, I, I'm still weirdly uncomfortable with a lot of cursing online, which is funny because I curse all the time in person. <laughs> but you know, I'm right, I know you're laughing because you're like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And I've also said example. the I've also said the f word like twelve times during this podcast. I know it. And yet, you know, I hop on Facebook or Twitter and I just I feel very bad about using profanity, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And there's plenty of F-bombs and all those Celtics Wire emails. Um, and, you know, they're also there. I'm always proud of when they've got something interesting to say about the gameplay. Um, and often they don't. I don't think they do. You know, like I don't really know what variation of pistol action coach is running you know because they're playing a team with you know a, a, a bevy of of switchable bigs i mostly just like jalen brown's awesome and that's kind of it so um i appreciate it you know thank you but i'm you're hyping me up a little bit more than i deserve here i'm i'm kind of a uh, i'm kind of a studio gangster really when it comes to this i'm not nearly as like legit as you're making me sound a self-described studio gangster the <laughs> studio gangster that that's probably the one of the greatest quotes that the Celtics have given us, right? Not not necessarily that, that one of the Celtics said that, but it was Udonis Haslam said that about Paul Pierce, right? Yeah. 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 And I mean what a what a line. Just a studio gangster. I'd never heard that before Udonis brought it up. I, I think I think that's original to him, to the best of my knowledge. Though I feel like that's a <laughs> that's a put down that needs to come out all the time. Like that's a, that's a pretty, that's pretty cold. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. I mean, even though it's talking about our guy, like that was pretty funny. And especially if it comes from Udonis Haslam, like he was, he's as tough as, is he still in the, I think he's still in the NBA. He is still he's, somehow collecting paychecks. He's definitely still part of the heat mafia. What he does, I have no idea. I don't <laughs> know if, I don't know if he's the 15th guy, if he's up there in the stands with Alonzo and his flip phone. But he's doing something for the Heat. I'm positive of that. Yeah, it's it's, uh, and he probably always will. Like Udonis Haslam will just be on the Miami Heat roster forever. And will he play? No, probably not. Never. But he'll be on the team in some form or fashion. Uh, it's like him and Jawan Howard have just become like the tag team of of veteran big guys in Miami. 
I'm sure a hardcore Heat fan could give us examples otherwise, but from the outside looking in, like under Pat Riley, the Heat have taken care of their own, right? Like you know, you're you're part of that team, and like Except Riley with doesn't. Except with Dwayne Wade, right? Dwayne Wade's back, but but they kind of did him dirty the first time around. I feel like not not that they did him dirty, but like they didn't really put in a lot of effort to keep him around. I think they both knew his time was up there and they were both trying to save face. I mean, it's, it's crippling when you keep the guy that's past his prime on prime contract money and they know it. And it feels like something that they immediately buried, right? Like Dwayne and Gabby are delighted to be back in the three Oh five. I'm sure they never sold their house. Like, I'm sure it's just like the prodigal son, right? Like everything's cool now that Wade's back there, though. You know, what they're going to do with the minutes for all those swing guys, we'll see. I I don't get the feeling like there's really, truly any hard feelings. You know, everybody, you know, at that level of greatness has thin skin. You know, those great players and those, you know, great coaches like Pat Riley, hyper competitive. They, They remember every slight. I'm sure they were upset, you know, for a while. But that stuff passes. And I don't I don't get the feeling like yeah, there's any kind of ill will or, or grudges held there. I'm, I'll be curious to see if Wade comes back next season. Um, and if not, I'm, I'm sure whatever job that, that is waiting for him down there in Miami, if he wants to or even needs to bother to work, uh, I'm sure that was taken care of five years ago. Yeah, that that's kind of like the – I feel like that's one of the cooler stories in the NBA this year, Dwayne Wade going back to Miami. And ultimately, it won't mean much. Like he's not going to – move the needle one way or another for that team but yeah yeah that's not high on my my list of nba stories for the season i i gotta tell you i'm but, just but th- not think about okay so you're a celtics guy like after paul pierce had gotten traded if they if the celtics had reacquired him two years later you would have gone nuts probably for the wrong reasons i mean i if you remember from Celtics wire threads last season, I was more than okay with trading Isaiah Thomas during his great run last year. Like I can be a little cold hearted. Um, you know, I mean like you and age. Yeah. Me, me and Danny we're buddies. Yeah, Pierce's time was up, you know, and, and bringing guy back. I mean, you don't remember Patrick Ewan play for the Sonics. You don't think of Michael Jordan playing for the wizards, you know, the, the good days, always come to the top of your mind when thinking about the great players and the breakup's always a little bit ugly but those things i think are forgotten very very quickly unless somebody is actively trying to set their legacy on fire you know and pierce isn't that guy wade's not that guy i feel like this entire generation of nba superstars are not those guys you know um you you want your you want your team to win and when the star goes the star goes and that's all right you know and you had a terrific run for five or seven years or whatever it is um i don't think we look back on you know a guy like bird and his bad back you know we look back on that period where he was amazing he was the the best in in the world um and and i think that would be the same thing with a, a waiter or a pierce you know if he came back after after the nets and we don't have that great moment in dc where he called game right you got to have some of that too that was that was an amazing moment he had he had he actually had like that playoff run in in DC. He hit some enormous shots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, still had a little bit of gas in the tank. I mean, the, the Clippers days were a little little rough. Yeah, um, they got bad. <laughs> you know, but but I mean, hitting that you know hitting that shot back in the garden as a Clipper, you know, stuff like that, you know, is kind of it, it's not high stakes stuff like winning a. T- yeah, I go back and forth on the shot in the garden. 
so so it was it was an incredible moment, right? Like Paul Pierce comes back to Boston, final time in Boston, hits a shot at the end of a game. The crowd goes wild. It was it was an incredible moment to be in the Garden, right? But at the same time, it's like this is Paul Pierce, greatest Celtic of a generation, and it was it was almost like they treated him like the the special education kid who gets in at the end of the game and they just let him have a shot. And it's like, that's Paul Pierce, man. Like make him earn that shit. You know, <laughs> like I would have no, loved I hear you. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and it, like, it was cool. The moment was incredible. The atmosphere in the garden was spectacular, but like, why don't, don't give Paul Pierce. I like, don't this insult Paul Pierce by, just giving him a bucket at the end of a game. I don't know. So that's why I go back and forth on that. But I only go back and forth on that with hindsight. Like, in the moment, I was like, that's that's pretty freaking In the moment, cool. was cool. No, yeah. that was definitely cool. Yeah, and then it, it's something that, that you'll look back on. And just the way the Garden reacted was unbelievable. But, yeah, it's just kind of, kind of bothersome that Paul Pierce was given that treatment. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. It sounds like you're on you're on your own island on that one. Yeah, probably, probably on Paul Pierce was disrespected island by myself. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's wrap this up. We we're both gonna go watch this stupid All Star game. Or hopefully you'll you'll ignore this stupid All Star game. I will be watching this stupid All Star game. We just recorded right before this stupid All Star game. Um, there will be not a lot of defense. I'm kind of kind of hoping it'll be more competitive than it has been in the past. All the players say they want it to be more competitive. There, there have been changes. There's a little more money, I believe, that's going to the winner. So I'm hoping. I don't have a lot of hope, though. Not a lot of hope. Yeah, I mean, uh, more money is great. They already have a ton of money. There has to, I mean, unless you're a guy that's borderline sociopathic, like a Jordan or Bird, who just has to win those games, you know, nobody's going to risk injury. They've been partying for four days. Um, you know, the fans ooh and ah over, you know, the, the fun offensive stuff. I mean, you, to really have it matter, you'd have to go all out on defense and that's where you're going to, you might get hurt. They're not going to do that. So yeah, I have, you know, maybe if they're feeling up to it, the last four minutes of the fourth quarter, maybe, but that's all I, I think, want. Just give me a quarter. Boy, give me a quarter uh, or at least a we'll stretch, see. you know, that that's all I need. Anyway, everybody that listen to our podcast everybody who doesn't listen to our podcast go buy all the castles burned it is honestly one of the one of the best books i've ever read just a spectacular read i i I started it at six in the morning i had a flight i literally had not slept i got to my flight at six in the morning i had finished it by like mid-afternoon and i just didn't sleep i didn't sleep at all the whole time i was just extremely fired up to read this book and it was awesome the whole way through I didn't want to stop. I didn't stop. And it was amazing. All the Castles Burn by Michael Nye. Everybody go buy that at Amazon.com. Honestly, just you you will not be disappointed. One of the best books about basketball, friendship, growing up that that I've ever read. And I, I, I I'm biased. I'm totally biased. But I also believe I would I would feel that way if if I was completely unbiased. So thank you for writing the book, Michael. Thank you for coming on this podcast. For those who don't know, we are the Locked On Celtics podcast. Subscribe to us. Search for Locked On Celtics wherever you get your podcast. Audio Boom, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, wherever else. We're 
the only Monday through Friday Celtics podcast, the greatest Celtics podcast ever, and the only place where you can get Michael Nye talking about Tim Hardaway's awesome stretch. Any chance I get to talk about Tim Hardaway, even on a Celtics podcast, I'm going to do that. I just have to do it. Uh, thank you. I, man, I, I really appreciate everything you said about the book. I'm delighted to be on the show. I've been listening to it for years. Uh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. You're my man. You're my man. When you were talking about Tim Hardaway, the thing I thought about was the, the coolest random moment of my basketball fan of life, which was when Tayshaun Prince hit like five straight threes against, I, I think he was playing UNC in college. He was on Kentucky and he just started off with five threes. And the last one was from like half court. And it was just like just dropping his balls all over UNC. And I'd randomly like just gone home from practice and turned it on and it was awesome. And I guess that's, an, that's as good a place as any to stop this podcast because it's the most random place ever. Uh, but yeah. Confidence, <laughs> baby. Confidence. All, all about confidence. It's all about confidence and self-awareness. Dependent. Dependent. <laughs> Appreciate it, Michael. Take care, man. Thanks, man. You Yeah. J. King and John Corrales. Locked on Celtics. Millie. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.